Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. By all accounts, 2020 has been a year to remember, and we're only about three quarters of the way done with it so far. It's been a year of all sorts of really difficult societal conversations, and among them, conversations about systemic racism. In our own house, we've started conversations about race and disparities in healthcare and medicine. And obviously, this is a complex topic, way out of the scope of a 20 or so minute podcast, but we are going to try to open a tiny window and look through it, discussing a new paper in AEM entitled Disparities in Care the role of race on the utilization of physical restraints in the emergency setting. Today we have with us two of the authors, Dr. Christina Schnitzer and Dr. Flannery Meredith. Dr. Schnitzer is a psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital, affiliated with the Schizophrenia Clinical and Research Program, and an instructor at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Meredith is a staff psychiatrist on the Psychiatric Consultation Service at Bay State Medical Center, and she completed Consultation Liaison Psychiatry Fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. Don't forget to read the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. And this month's AEM issue also includes a commentary response to this article that may interest you as well. So thank you so much, Dr. Schnitzer and Dr. Meredith for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us on your podcast and for highlighting this work. Mm -hmm. So let me just clarify because uh, I want people to know who is talking when. Uh, Dr. Schnitzer, could you say hello so they know what your voice is? Sure. Hello. My name is Christina Schnitzer. And uh, Dr. Meredith. Hi, I'm Flannery Meredith. Great. So uh, for both of you, as, as we are striving for a greater awareness these days of all sorts of disparities related to race, your paper is particularly timely. And in this study, you examine the effect of race on the risk of physical restraint placement in the emergency department. Uh, so this is a single center site, and you make the point in the paper that this is not yet generalizable because of that, but can you describe the center where this study takes place for us? Sure, I can go ahead and do that. Um, so this study was a retrospective review of patients presenting to the emergency department at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Um, that hospital is located in downtown Boston, and the ED there sees about 100,000 visits a year. Um, over the two-year stretch that we examined, so calendar years of 2016 and 2017, uh, the population presenting to the ED was about 68% white, 10% black, and about 4% Asian. Um, we, we did note, as you mentioned, that from a methodological standpoint, a single center study can't in and of itself be considered generalizable. Uh, but we do believe that these data reflect what is likely actually happening in many emergency departments across the country, not just in RED. Um, by way of example, we've actually looked at these data across other hospitals in our system, one additional academic medical center, uh, emergency department, and then seven community emergency departments, and the same results were found. Um, you know, I will say everyone at MGH, particularly the Department of Emergency Medicine, believes this to be a, a hugely important issue. And 
one that should be discussed broadly um, as we're doing here. Excellent. So you looked at, it was 195,092 unique adult ED visits by 120,469 individuals at this site over a two-year period. And you evaluated how many of these visits involved physical restraint and any association of patient-reported race on restraint, as well as a number of other factors that we're going to get to in a minute. But let's talk about one fine point first. So why is it important in your study that race is patient-reported? And how did you ensure that that was the case at the time of registration, as opposed to just an assumption of the registration staff? And what kind of what were the categories of race that they offered? Um, and again, not that I expect you to explain all the nuance of race as a societal versus biological construct in a fifteen minute podcast, but just for the purpose of this uh, purposes of this study, why was that important? Yeah, we definitely felt that it was important that race be patient reported uh, because we didn't want there to be any incorrect assumptions or attributions of race made by someone other than the individual, the patient themselves. And the way that we ensured this is that it's sort of like the hospital policy is the patient enters their own race information at registration. And in our study, we looked at nine categories of race, which are based on what was offered at admission in the emergency department. So those categories included American Indian or Alaskan Native, Asian, Black or African American, Hispanic or Latino which is also offered as um, an ethnicity option, Native, American, or Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander, white, racial category of other, racial category of declined, meaning the patient chose not to answer, and then unavailable. And unavailable is important because, again, we didn't want someone in registration to just assume or attribute race of their own accord. And so if a patient was too sick or too altered or agitated in order to answer the question about which race they identify, then the category of unavailable was used. You know, one other thing I want to mention is that race can be ascribed in social interactions in what we call socially assigned race, which is um, also an important determinant of difference in healthcare outcomes. And it's methodologically very difficult to study socially assigned race because you have to be able to survey clinicians before and after about you know, what race they thought a patient may be. And our study was just not designed to address the question of whether socially assigned race plays a role. But I would just mention that someone may still have in the back of their mind a socially assigned race, regardless of what the patient indicated um, in the medical record. Right. And so of these 195,000 patient visits, um, there were 2,658, or it was 1.4%, um, involved the actual application of physical restraints in the ED. So um, again, with just the the background and definitions, how did you define physical restraint? And you do make a distinction in the paper between behavioral and non-behavioral restraint. Like, can you explain that for us? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, in the hospital, um, like in the bylaws, physical restraint is defined as any manual, physical, or mechanical device, material, or equipment that immobilizes or reduces the ability 
to move arms, legs, body, or head freely. But in practice, this is mostly the use of two or four point Velcro or locked leather restraints. And for the purposes of our study, a behavioral restraint indicates that a restraint was ordered and required for an issue that was primarily psychiatric in nature. So for example, someone who's manic or psychotic. Whereas a non-behavioral restraint means that a restraint was needed for an issue that was primarily medical in nature. So substance use, agitated delirium, some kind of agitated agitation related, related to a traumatic brain injury or something like that. Okay. And so besides race, what were the other factors that you were interested in? Can you briefly walk us through your methods and how you looked at those? Sure. Um, so though race was our primary outcome, uh, we were also really interested in examining potentially independent effects of uh, things like sex, insurance, age, um, diagnosis, whether or not someone was homeless, um, and whether or not they had a history of violence, um, and how those related to the use of restraint. Um, and then with respect to methods, you know, as we mentioned, this was a retrospective chart review of all ED visits from January 1st, 2016 to January 2nd, 2018. Um, of note, we treated multiple visits by the same individual over that two-year period as separate and unique visits. And we accounted for this in our statistical model as well. Um, for analysis, we ran various regression models. So we had a base model that regressed the use of restraint on race alone, uh, a model that looked at the effect of another covariate alone, say sex, um, a model with effects for race and the covariate together, and then finally a model with effects for race, the covariate, and a race by covariate interaction. So looking, say, if race and sex interact to produce an effect. Okay, so regarding the history of violent behavior, um, how did you determine that? Was, just, was that just based on what was in the chart, or there may be things that you didn't know about? Yeah, that's obviously a challenging thing to do. So what we did is we developed a proxy for history of violence, basically a variable that was constructed based on the presence of a violence-related discharge diagnosis and or the presence of a safety risk flag. So a violence-related discharge diagnosis included conduct disorder, impulse disorder, unspecified behavioral and emotional disorder, homicidal ideation, hostility, irritability and anger, um, violent behavior. And then the safety risk flag is basically, uh, it's a criteria-based indication for this flag that's determined by an interdisciplinary hospital committee that includes members from quality and safety, police and security, patient advocacy, risk management, psychiatry, social work, and nursing leadership who get together and they review any disruptive safety-related behavioral incident reports that are filed with the hospital. So if you are, if there's an incident that comes up and is discussed at this committee, a patient may have a safety risk flag associated with them. So we took, again, any violence-related discharge diagnosis and any safety risk flag and used that as a proxy for history of violence. Okay, great. 
So uh, walk us through your results. What did you find about the association of race and the use of restraints in the ED? And was this independent of the other factors that you looked at? Yep. So our primary finding was that there was an overall effect of race on patient restraint that was significant. And, and yes, as you mentioned, this was independent of the other factors that we examined. So this effect remained when we controlled for all those other variables I mentioned. Um, looking more closely at risk of restraint for various racial groups, the relative risk of restraint for Asian patients compared to white patients was 0.71. And the relative risk of restraint for Black patients compared to white patients was 1.22. We also found that the increased risk of restraint associated with Black race was significantly greater in men than in women, and also that Black patients without a history of violence were more likely to be restrained than white patients similarly without a history of violence. I see. And how do the other factors in your analysis affect restraint use? Yeah, so all of the other variables that we examined also turned out to have significant effects on the risk of restraint. Um, so going through those briefly, um, males were twice as likely to be restrained uh, as females. Individuals with public insurance or who were uninsured uh, were more likely to be restrained than those with private insurance. Younger individuals were more likely to be restrained than older individuals. Um, looking at diagnoses uh, relative to individuals with all other diagnoses, so psychiatric and non-psychiatric, individuals who carried a diagnosis of bipolar disorder or a psychotic disorder were nearly 10 times more likely to be restrained. And individuals with a substance use disorder diagnosis were eight times more likely to be restrained. Uh, we also found homeless individuals were nearly six times more likely to be restrained than those who were housed. And those with a history of violence were 13 times more likely to be restrained. Okay. So can you talk about some of the limitations of this study? Yeah. For one thing, we had to combine the behavioral and non-behavioral restraint types rather than an analyzing them separately because we lacked confidence in the accuracy of the labeling of the restraint type during the ordering process in the medical record. We also used the first race a patient selected for themselves at registration, um, and so weren't able to classify individuals as multiracial if they identified as multiple races. And then though Hispanic and Latino is included in both race and ethnicity queries at patient registration, we did not include ethnicity in our analysis. So we can't state with certainty that there is a significantly higher or lower rate of restraint among people who identify ethnically as Hispanic. And then the unavailable race category likely included individuals of all races who, again, were too sick or agitated to provide demographic information. Um, and then certainly diagnostic precision of psychiatric illnesses in the ED is probably flawed or incomplete. And we combined psychosis and bipolar disorder because there can be significant overlap in presenting symptoms. However, bipolar disorder can present with mania or depression. And of course, risk of agitation and aggression in these patients is less clear than in those with psychosis because your risk is going to be different in depression. Also, the categorical label that we used for substance use includes all substances. So we didn't look at sympathomimetics versus non-stimulants separately. Um, and then, you know, our, 
it's our inability to account for patients who may have had both a mental health and a substance use disorder um, was probably a little bit flawed as well. I think, you know, inherent in the complexity of this work is an inability to control for every possible factor, such as acute medical comorbidities, et cetera, just given the limitations of the available data. Understood. So so what lessons do you think we might come away from this study with? What What work do you think needs to come next? We think there's important work that needs to be done in examining how our policies, protocols, and procedures in emergency medicine might contribute to structural racism. Yeah, I would agree. You know, I, I think we really hope that this study can be a first step in that it has identified this potential disparity, but but the really hard work is to come of, of figuring out the how and the why um, and beginning to, to chart a path to course correct. Um, you know, as I alluded to before, um, there are a lot of efforts ongoing at MGH um, in conversation with police and security, ED leadership, nursing, clinician providers on how we can begin to thoughtfully address um, and, and begin the process of rectifying the disparities that, that we highlighted here. Um, the MGH emergency department has been incredibly receptive um, and engaged, and, and I know that they're working on several actionable uh, initiatives uh, to begin the work. Um, you know, we, we think it's really important that we keep talking about it. So, you know, thank you for having us here to do just that. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, this paper. I think that this is really important work. Um, the more data we have, the harder these facts are to ignore. And um, I, I'm really interested in seeing what comes next. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.